What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. Today we're joined by Mike Berners-Lee to discuss what you can do to save the planet and fight back against climate change. It's a really fascinating conversation which deals with a lot of the themes in Mike's book, There Is No Planet B, and he discussed them in conversation with Jenny Kleeman, the author of Sex Robots and Vegan Meat and a presenter on Times Radio. And if you do enjoy it, you can find a link for the books in the podcast description. But now, let's go to the episode. Hello and welcome to this Intelligence Squared event with Mike Berners-Lee, who is a hugely respected expert on carbon and sustainability. He is a professor for social futures at Lancaster University and the founder of Small World Consulting, which advises organisations from small businesses to big tech giants on carbon metrics, targets and actions. Here is his recent book. There is no Planet B, a handbook for the make or break years. It's actually an updated edition, which I think is out uh, today or tomorrow, the, the updated edition, new edition. Previous books include How Bad Are Bananas? The Carbon Footprint of Everything and The Burning Question. We can't burn half the world's oil, coal and gas, so how do we quit? Welcome, Mike. Thank you so much for joining us. Good evening. It's a great pleasure to be here. So you're here to talk about the book. The, the title of this event is What You Can Do to Save the Planet. So I guess my first question is, what's the book about and what can you do to save the planet? Well, the book is about exactly that, saving the planet. So, you know, I've been working on climate change for 15 years or something. And the, and the, the, the harder you look at the whole climate change challenge, the more inescapably clear it becomes that you have, if you want to deal with climate change, you have to see it as just one symptom of something much bigger that's going on. So what is that bigger thing? It's really that humans have been getting more and more powerful every year for centuries or millennia. But what's happened really recently is that we've suddenly become so powerful that we're the biggest thing affecting the planet. And we've reached the point where we don't have to do anything particularly stupid to smash the place up if we're not careful enough we will smash the place up. And that's exactly what's happening at, at high speed now. And so um, I've got a slide for this, actually, my little sketch to, to illustrate this. My, my slide number one, if we can see that. OK, so that was my little sketch for it, which just shows... And some people use this big word for it. They call it the Anthropocene, this era in which, which suddenly humans are the big thing that affect the planet. And, you know, we used to be the small species on the left-hand side there, you know, who could, that could treat... The, the, the earth like a big robust playground you know even a hundred years ago we couldn't smash the whole place up and then we got more and more powerful 
And, you know, now we've reached this point at which suddenly the world is so fragile. And we've had a few decades of being in this Anthropocene, but being able to get away with just living as if we're not. But now, right now, and it really is right now, is the moment at which if we don't transition everything about how we do life to being Anthropocene fit, the consequence is going to hit us uh, really, really hard. So the book is a handbook. How do you want people to use it? Because it's, it's meant to be used in a very practical way, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it's written. You know, all books sort of start at, start at page one and go through to page 300 and whatever. But ideally, I mean, you know, the, the, the context we're in now is that the challenges we face are so inescapably interdependent. It doesn't work to look at climate change over here and then um, biodiversity over here and then the, the social issues um, that we've got to deal with and the economics and politics all separately. You have to join the whole thing up at once. So ideally, you know, you just, you'd just kind of pick up the book and you'd flick through it like this and you'd just absorb the whole lot simultaneously you just do that until you'd understood the whole lot and then you know and then you'd have it all in your head simultaneously so my book which is laid out in kind of in in question format is designed to be the closest you can get to something that you can sort of pick away at and, and absorb simultaneously i suppose but there are also many different ways that you kind of make your core argument in the book, aren't there? That you've got this alphabetised thing at the end where you could read a paragraph a night before you go to bed, as you say. Um, there's your argument summed up in two pages, if that's how you want it. Or you could read the whole book or you could just go in through the index. I mean, clearly, when you were writing it, accessibility was incredibly important to you. Why was that? Oh, it really, it really, really is. It's, it's partly because I read like a snail myself, but um, it's, it's partly because it's because I always think with any kind of document, you know, you want to be able to access it, you know, know something about it just by reading the title and then a bit more by reading the contents page. And if you've got one minute, you should be able to flick through and find a few bits. You know, if you really love it, you should be able to read it cover to cover. And if you just want to dip in for reference and, you know, if you want to have, you know, sit down for an hour, that's fine. If you just want to read one or two questions at night before you go to bed, that it should be accessible in every way you want. Because the, the stuff that I'm writing about, I really, you know, it's it's absolutely core. You know, I, I think the stuff that I put in there is the stuff that I think all humans need to get their heads around now, because otherwise we can't manage the situation that we're in. The book has been updated because uh, the original version came out a couple of years ago, didn't it? And so, so tell us what you've updated in it, because clearly the world has changed a lot over the past 12 months. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, so the book talks about, you know, all the things that are, that are going on. So, so first of all, it talks about all the environmental challenges we've got. So climate change and biodiversity. And actually, can we put up slide, my slide two here? Because it just fleshes it all out in, in one in one go. So if, that, if you can see that now, you know, in the green around the outside are all the kind of physical challenges that we're facing, like, you know, um, climate change, biodiversity, uh, um, stuff going on in our oceans, pollution, disease that we're hearing all about. While we deal with all that, we've got to feed the world you know, feed a rising population. All these things have to be dealt with at once. But they're kind of really good news. The one-liner of good news, but I spend the first 50 to 100 pages <laughs> picking through this in detail, is that, that from a technical and science point of view, you know, we've got the solutions to all that stuff. If only it was just a challenge of science and technology. So the real, 
so that takes us into the questions of what would it take for humans to be solving these technically solvable challenges? And that takes you into questions of growth. What is our relationship with growth? What things is it still okay for humans to grow? We can't grow our climate emissions. We're unable to grow the size of the planet. We probably better not grow our population too much. Is it okay to grow GDP? You know, all those sorts of questions. But then other questions like, you know, our relationship with technology, which has been fantastic, but it's also our technology has also taken us to the very dangerous place we're in at the moment. So we need to renegotiate our relationship with it somewhat, even though we need lots of technologies to take us forwards. You know, uh, what it means to be in business, what it means to invest money. Inequality is a is a is quite a big part of the book because because we're all on this planet together, like it or not. You know, we all sink or swim as seven point seven billion, and so there's all those kinds of issues. And then right at the very centre of the book, there are questions about core values and and ways that we think, which which it looks like humans need to get far better at now that we're in the Anthropocene. So that's the kind of tech. That's the context of the book. And in the last two years. There's been really quite a lot of development in in some of those areas that deserved an update. So we've had the probably the biggest thing I would say is that on the one hand the science has been getting scarier and scarier, and if we're not feeling some adrenaline by that about that, you know we really we really should be. But on the other hand, the evidence that humans are actually starting to wake up to the challenges that we're facing seriously, I think are. That evidence is far stronger than ever. We've got a long way to go and it's really, really urgent. But, you know, the school strikes and the Extinction Rebellion, showing that people really care about this stuff, governments responding, including the UK government, taking some steps that are nowhere near enough, but they are really good steps in the right direction. You know, I didn't... I didn't write. I didn't get a chance to write about Biden getting elected, but you know, there's there's some change. But also in my work with businesses of all 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 different kinds of business, I'm seeing such a change in what is possible, what people want to do. So you know, all of that needed to be written up, and of course, the pandemic, <laughs> the the impact of the pandemic, as well. So it deserves an update. So a lot of people watching this now will have been watching Biden being inaugurated and heard his words and perhaps take quite a lot of hope from those words. Are you feeling much more optimistic now that he is the president? I really hope that this is going to be, you know, a a, a very good chapter. I mean, I I think there's no doubt about it. So the Trump, the the Trump years have been like a, a lead weight on the world's response to climate and the wider environmental crisis. And, you know, whatever Biden turns out to be like, just lifting that weight will will make a huge difference. And, you know, Biden is saying, you know, a lot of the things I'd, I'd want him to say. I was really quite, I haven't heard his, his speech today yet, but I did hear his acceptance speeches and Kamala Harris's acceptance speech as well. And I was really struck that, the value there are three core values that i call for in no there's no planet b which are i just lay out three values that i think humans now need from a practical perspective humanity can't thrive without fostering these values as cultural norms and those three values are were absolutely laced throughout both those two acceptance speeches and yet they've been absent from the last four years of us rhetoric and i just felt are uh, you know really really, uh, you know, elated. I, I, I hope Biden's as, well, I hope he's as good as I hope he's going to be. How important 
important is America to to the fight against climate change? I mean, is it the case that if America is not on board, it's kind of pointless or or is that to overstate it? Yeah, that would be to overstate it. I mean, America is hugely important. But the you know, what's what I think gives me enormous hope is that, you know, with so the first thing Trump did was pull out of the Paris Agreement, which was nuts. I mean, you know, every significant country in the world signed up to the Paris Agreement and then America pulled out. And yet, despite that, the momentum on climate change has still gathered pace. Yeah. And in the UK, it's gathered a lot of pace. And amongst, you know, amongst amongst the, the, the population, it's gathered a lot of pace. Amongst the business world, it's gathered a lot of pace. And it's gathered a little bit of pace in politically as well. But momentum's grown through, throughout the world. And now, without Trump acting like an anchor on the whole thing, you know, I really think we might... Uh, we might see a, a real change in the pace. And China is also making some of the right noises as well. That's very significant. Let's talk about the pandemic now, because part of, 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 of your argument in the book is about consumerism and the need for us to not be constantly consuming, expanding. And I think maybe over the past year, we have experienced what it feels like to not be doing that. It feels like we're at a critical point now where we can choose what we want to be after this. You are an incredibly optimistic person. Are you optimistic um, ab- ab- about the post-pandemic future? Well, you know, I'm an optimistic because I'm an optimist in the sense that I think there's everything to play for, or it looks likely that there's everything to play for. You know, humanity is really playing with fire now, and actually, we talk with we we tend to talk about the challenges we face as if we understand them a lot more than we really do. The truth of it is, we're throwing the dice. We don't know whether we've already crossed tipping points um, on on climate that we that you know that we now can't go back from. The same with some of the other, you know, some of the other environmental challenges uh, that that are going on. But it looks likely that if we take really strong action right now, we have the opportunity to probably live better than ever. Most of us, and so you know, am I optimistic? What I would say is this, a few years ago, Duncan Clark and I wrote The Burning Question. It's about 2013, all about the big picture on climate change. And when that came out, I remember we sat down together and we were just kind of looking at each other, scratching our heads going, come on, look, the stuff we've put down here is so not rocket science. And yet the world is just carrying on regardless. It was just felt ridiculous. It's like, the, you know, the global brain is just broken here. And it doesn't feel like that anymore. It feels like there's a long way to go, but it feels that the slow process of humanity waking up has has actually begun in a meaningful way. And I think when you're trying to get system change, and it does need to be a really big, holistic system change, I think the first, you know, the very first parts of that change are the hardest ones. So I've got, actually, I've got a little slide on this. So my slide three, you know, shows that the curve there is 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 global carbon emissions going up year on year and if you were if you were looking at this from mars you'd say you know martian would look down on take this data from planet earth and say oh we can tell from this that humans haven't noticed climate change yet and you and i you know i'm picking my words carefully that that curve's going up exactly as if exactly as if we had not noticed climate change so the real challenge is the, 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 the heart of the climate change phenomenon has been what's that head doing in the sand but I think that head has moved the first millimetre upwards now. And if you think you're trying to pull that head out of the sand, you know, the first millimetre is the hardest one, isn't it? So, I, you know, I'm hopeful that if we all pull hard now, 
that head might come out of the sand and we might really engage in a very strong you know, transition into everything about how humans carry themselves. And just by the way, you know, the quality of our lives will just will be immeasurably better when we're making that transition. The title of this event is Mike Berners-Lee on what you can do to save the planet. One of the things that you, you come up with many different ways that we can save the planet from, from changing the way you travel around to changing your consumption habits. But you do talk in the book about whether or not we should all go vegan and vegetarian. And you're quite pragmatic about it, aren't you? That it's not a kind of all or nothing thing for you, but that if, if we were to drastically cut down our our, um, our consumption of meat and dairy, that would make a big difference. Perhaps you could talk a bit about that because I've got another quite specific question afterwards about new and emerging technologies relating to that that I'd love to hear your opinion on. But, <laughs> but talk about that, about the impact of, of changing your diet on the planet. Yeah, okay. So it's one of the, you know, there's, there's no getting around it. If you look at our food and land system, it's about a quarter of the whole climate challenge, but it's also, you know, we also desperately need to stop hemorrhaging our biodiversity and we need to feed a rising global population and it, and if you look at the role of meat and dairy in in this you know it's it's clear cut that the amount of meat and dairy we have in our food system is putting enormous pressure on our food and land you know our biodiversity the climate and everything and it's not that we need to go absolutely 100% vegan or ve- or even vegetarian but it is pretty clear cut that at the global level, and even more than that, at the UK level, we need to eat a lot less meat and dairy. You know, the good news is that that'll be good for us as well. It could be really tasty. We'll get used to it. We'll get to enjoy it. We'll get to the point where it's it's what we want to do. But it's like so many things in terms of personal actions. We don't need to be really hard and fast about it, but we do need to make a lot of change. And you know, similarly, we don't need to never fly, but we do need to only fly for really good reasons. And that's, you know... If that makes it sound like it's all a bit of a wearing a hair shirt going on the sustainability thing, overall, it's absolutely not. It's full of opportunities to go and strip out the rubbish from our lives that just stresses us out and, and doesn't bring any quality at all and add in things that are, you know, really do add value to our lives like community and health and, you know, all kinds of other stuff. The burning question that I've wanted to ask you is, so I, ha- I have written a book called Sex, Robots and Vegan Meat. And Such the vegan a good title. Meat I haven't, in- yeah, I'm- Yes, it's a catchy title. Uh, But the vegan meat in the title refers to meat grown in a laboratory. So real meat, but instead of being grown inside the body of an animal, it's cultivated inside a laboratory. And I'd love to to hear what you think about that, because a lot of the people who who make it and are promoting it say that this is the solution to climate climate crisis. That's much better for the for the environment. And I'd love to hear what your take is on that. Yeah, and actually, it's something that I wrote a couple of extra pages about in the updated version of the book. It's, you know, and it's something that took me a little bit of what, time to get my head around. But if you, uh, you know, I think that, you know, industrial grown food is probably the way it's going to go. I don't, it doesn't, you know, a lot of it is going to go that way. And the reality of that is because if you look at how much the the, the efficiency of turning sunlight into human nutrition you can do it by having plants capturing sunlight growing and then you eat parts of that plant maybe you have maybe you have wheat a field full of wheat Um, or if you want to generate carbohydrate you put solar panels on a field and then you have a factory that turns solar panels (laughs) that turns that uses electricity to generate carbohydrate you know or you have a, a process that generates protein and if you look at the efficiencies of those processes that we can do today 
to to create both carbohydrate and protein, it's something like 50 times more efficient in terms of what you can produce from a meter of land than than having a field. And that's, you know, makes me go gulp a bit. Do I really look forward to that world? But I think we'll get used to it. And I think the trade-off is that, you know, we sacrifice 2% of the world's surface area to solar panels, say, you know, and in exchange for that, we get to free up the rest of the Earth's surface for, bio, for biodiversity. And I think on balance, it's a win. I also want to ask about, I mean, obviously your book is called There Is No Planet B, but there are some people who think that there might be a planet B. There is a, there is a move to colonise space. You have Elon Musk, you have Jeff Bezos, you have lots of people yes. investing, private investment. And there is an idea that you could move heavy polluting industry somewhere into outer space and we could continue at, as normal, uh, <laughs> but on another planet. What do you think about that? Well, I'm so glad you asked me that question. And I did some uh, back of the envelope calculations to head off exactly this line of thought in the book, uh, which does try to be fun as well as serious at the same time. But if you so if you look at well, the the nearest the nearest planet that could be any good for humans to live on. Right. In other words, has a has an atmosphere and and so on is pretty local in in universe terms. It's only four light years away. And so if you're prepared to have a long journey, a 40-year journey, you will need to travel at a tenth of the speed of light. And if you look at the kinetic energy that's required to get a human up to that speed, it's absolutely, it's absolutely enormous. And that's just, a, that's just a human like flying through the air, flying through space in their underpants, which of course would be you know, instant death. So if you give them just a small spaceship, it would, and I just, in the book, I, I, I cranked all the numbers on this, but it turns out that if you took, if you wanted to put something like 100 people on that journey, it would require a whole year's worth of, the, of humanity's entire energy supply. So Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, well, they might be able to just about get them and their families off on this spaceship. Possibly. But, you know, for, for us mere mortals, it's a complete pipe dream for ourselves, for our next generation, 10, 10 generations down the line. It's not happening. We're stuck on our beautiful planet A, like it or not. And Star Trek is fiction. But what about if we stayed put and we put polluting industries on the moon? I, I'm being devil, devil's advocate here. This is not something that I'm seriously planning for um, in, my, in, sure in my own life. You know. But um, there are people who say that that's a possibility. That's a way out of climate crisis. If we can't look after the Earth, then it's not going to do us any good to mess up the moon as well. Yes, I would agree with that. So you talk about Extinction Rebellion in in, in the updated version of of the book. And I wonder what you make of them now, because perhaps even since you wrote the updated version, they they have changed quite a lot. I mean, you you say in the book that they're they're a very impressive movement. Do you think that over the last few months they might have lost their way a bit? Well, I think... I don't expect them to be perfect. And, I, and I, you know, I know that they'll make mistakes. I know they'll always get heavily criticised for those mistakes. And also the pandemic has really confused their, you know, has been a real spanner in the works in a way. It was clear cut how they, in some ways, how they should go about things. But, you know, and but what I think about Extinction Rebellion, and I'm amazed the sort of circles that I've been able to talk very positively about them in, you know, workshops full of asset managers you know i can say what a positive contribution they've made to the world and i thought i'd be looked at like some sort of sandal wearing hippie and i'm you know i'm not getting that look at all but i have to be you know just to be clear about what i am saying i think you know we have to have the change 
And if protest is what it takes, the right kind of protest, then great. If I think back to the original protests of what was it April 2019 when they you know when they were on Waterloo Bridge and several other locations around London and they were being extremely extremely positive in the way that they were protesting they were making sure that their the flavor of their protest was like a taste of a better world you know there were music and free food and there were talks and there were just and they were really emphasizing look you know there's no alcohol of drugs of course and there's and we respect everybody we respect the police we respect all politicians we respect each other so you know and these are the you know, the three values that in my book that I that I say are so essential and probably the heart of it all are respecting all people in the world as giving with giving all people equal respect respect in their inherent value as humans, respecting all the other species as well, and finally respecting truth for its own sake, no matter how inconvenient that might be. And those three values were just really strongly embedded in everything they did, and there was no doubt about it. They opened up space in the UK, political space for the UK to increase its targets, and I've talked to politicians who are very clear about that. And they opened up space in the business world for asset managers, businesses of all kinds to be bolder and go further. I, you know, I think, but I think how they go about it, and I write about this in the book, is very, very important. It's not just about screaming from the streets. They've got to make it really clear. Any protest has got to make it really clear to everybody that they stand for a better world that really works for everybody. And I think that need, they need to demonstrate that so that everybody so it's not just words they need to see it happening you write a lot about what you call hair shirtism and i wanted to ask you about that i mean do you think that environmentalism has been undermined by a kind of purism in the environmental movement and 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 in ethical veganism for example that can feel quite daunting and quite alienating for for people that aren't within the movement well i think it's a shame but i i if that happens and i think but you know, I think it's kind of also a, a cheap trick from critics to try and stereotype people who care about the environment in that way. You know, it's not the kind of world that, you know, that I stand for. I'm, I'm very clear and I do write, you know, I try and sum this up in one paragraph at the start of the book to try and create a flavour of the kind of, the kind of world that I envisage. And, you know, it is a better one for everybody. It's, it's more fun to live in. The air's cleaner. We're more connected to the people around us. Our jobs are more fulfilling. The pressures we put on ourselves are more self-inflicted and less inflicted by other people. You know, we compete for fun, but we collaborate when it's serious. And, you know, just everything about... And we've, we've decluttered. We're just, we're just spending more of our time in more meaningful ways. So... You know, it's this is not overall a hair shirt agenda at all. This is about making our lives. It's not just about heading off a crisis. It is about that, but it's actually about making our lives tons better while we're at it. You know, what's what's the point of saving a planet? There's no fun to live in. We're going to go to questions in a moment, but I wanted to ask you finally. I mean, you talk about respecting truth. Do you think we are finally? in a post-post-truth world now? Do you think we're going to, the, the, the truth is going to exist again or is it going to take a long time to get people to believe in facts and not believe in alternative facts? Well, it's so important that we do get to that post-post-truth world. You know, and I write a lot about this whole chapter on truth in the book and if I ever wrote a fourth book, it would probably be about truth, all about truth. You know, the complexity of what we're up against now is, is, so, is so high 
and it's also interconnected and it's so easy for anybody who's feeling mischievous to pull the wool over almost everyone's eyes. So, and we need the clearest view of the truth as far as we can discern it that we can get. And so we need to raise the standards on it. So we need to bring about, and we can all help with this, which is why I'm saying it now. You know, we need to bring about a culture in which a politician is seriously embarrassed if they are seen to have been careless with the truth. It's like, you know, did you hope that we wouldn't notice? You know, did you not get this or did you hope that we wouldn't get it? And, you know, it needs to be properly threatening to their careers. And the same goes for the business world. You know, we've, I've seen so much, so much awful greenwash over, you know, over the last decade or two that I've been working full time on this agenda. And we need to create an environment in which if a business is not, not necessarily lying, but misdirecting our attention or being disingenuous, we need to create an environment in which they will feel really exposed and embarrassed because they know their customers will walk away, their staff will care about it enough that they won't want to be associated with them. You know, and, you know, between us all, we can, pu we can push for that. And, you know, America has just taken one step in, a, in the right direction and it's got a lot of work to go on that. I love that idea there. That's a very hopeful idea that the, the kind of the quest for truth is up to us, really. It's up, up to us to demand it. Let's go to some questions now. Mike. Mike says, I no, you're Mike. He says, Mike, I live in South Lakes, not far from you at Lancaster University. Many of the fields are currently underwater. Do you agree that farming needs to change? And if so, how? Yeah, farming needs to change all over the world, but specifically in the UK. Uh, and we've got a great opportunity to really do the right thing with our land. So it's complex. It's, you know, we need to do the right thing in terms of food supply, in terms of biodiversity, also in terms of the communities who work the land. And actually doing the right thing with land takes skill and effort and people. So we need more farmers, not less. They need to be incentivized to absolutely do the right thing. It's really complex. I mean, you know, if there's a, if it, once, anyone who's listening, once you finish reading There's No Planet B, you know, please do pick up uh, English pastoral James Rebank's new book. He's a Lake District farmer. And he's really, he's really rolled up his, his sleeves on this question, these questions of, you know, how do you do the right thing by the land, by the food, by the communities, all the rest of it. And, you know, and he's a smart guy. And he says, you know, he has to get experts onto his land the whole time because the complexity of just his little hill farm is so high that one farmer can't get their heads around it in, in, in a lifetime. So, yes, we need to do the right thing. You know, having said all that, there are some fairly simple things that we could do to really to make big improvements just by, you know, incentivizing the right kinds of practice. But yes, you know, huge, huge change. Another question. What is the probability that we manage to pull off the changes required in time to avoid a climate catastrophe? A rather large question, Mike. Well, it's not 0% and it's not 100%, which means there's everything to play for and we should all be, you know, and the harder we push, the better our chances become. Those things, I think I can say, you know, for sure. The, the truth of it is, we don't know whether we've already tipped things to a point at which combination of feedback mechanisms, you know, methane exploding out of the melting permafrost, plus the melting ice caps, you know, plus the wildfires together have created a situation that we just, we can't undo. We don't, we think we're okay at the moment, but we don't know for sure. And the longer things go, the worse our, our 
chances get. And, you know, some people say to me, well, you know, we've had it because you look at humans, you look at how we've responded to this. It's clear we're not fit for the situation that we've created for us. It's here. It's clear that humans can't deal with the Anthropocene they've quite created for themselves. And, you know, I think that's distinctly unproven. But it is true that we won't we won't deal with it by carrying on as we've been doing. So the kind of transition that we need to see is deep. You know, it affects how we think, what our values are, which we can cultivate through through deliberate action, how we do our economics, how we structure up our politics. You know, it, it is deep change. There's an excellent question here. In the West, there is an awareness around sustainability. In most countries and for most people, other issues are of immediate interest and sustainability falls behind as a topic. How can we slash you reach these people with the message of your book? Well, the most important people to reach are the people in the developed world who need to take the leading action, uh, you know, right now. You know, it's, it's we're the people with the biggest impacts. And that's absolutely right. If you're if you're uh, struggling to to have what it takes to have, you know, a, a decent quality of life then in a in a in developing country then you know th- then you le- you legitimately have to some degree other priorities but it's up to us to make it good and ex- and acceptable and possible for developing countries to you know to go down the sustainability route as well you know we can we can we can help countries to transition from being poor to being sustainably wealthy and is is your book necessarily for people in developing countries would you say is this a global book with or is it a a, a pointed message for for us in the developed world do you think well the book's written from very much a global perspective so you know the challenges we face in the anthropocene are global challenges there's no getting around it there are 7.7 billion of us and if we don't begin to treat 7.7 billion people as if they all matter then we are ne- we're just never going to be able to look after a, fra- a, a planet as fragile you know as we're at but you know but a lot of the messages about what we can do you know, are I suppose I, I have in mind probably the, dire- the developed world most of the time because actually it's primarily us that need to be the lead actors on it right now. Another question: How should we recalibrate our assessment slash estimation of GDP to reflect the negative impacts of our activity, not just in the way in which we estimate GDP currently, in order to direct government policies to meet the climate and environmental challenges? Well, GDP, I mean, one of, that's one of the things we need to look at is metrics and what we do with metrics and which metrics we need, we use. So GDP, you know, has just got so overrated. It was invented, I don't know, when 100 years ago or something. It was never really intended to be used as the, as the big master metric of success that it's treated as now. And it's completely out of place and, and inappropriate. So, that, so it's not that GDP is a bad metric. It's just that we, sh- we need to unfixate ourselves and we need to tune in to other things that matter more, that are more connected with the, the well-being of people and planet. And so that when a chancellor starts banging on about GDP, everyone just yawns at them. Right. Because we're interested in other stuff more. But it's also true to say that, you know, all metrics are a bit reductionist and we need to treat them all with a pinch of salt. You, you can game them all. And, you know, we game GDP terribly at the, at the moment. And, you know, but any metric you, you can game it. So you need to stand back to it and say, look, you know, we were only using that metric because 
of some qualitative thing that was really important to us, like the health of people and planet. So there's a there's a whole, you know, and the yeah the implications for economics are enormous. So it's really unsurprising that today's economics are unfit for purpose because we honed our economics over millennia, millennia in a pre-anthropocene world. And that's a totally different context for humanity to be in. So now we need to rework into something that is fit for, uh, for, the, for the modern world. And so I, you know, I heard Mark Carney's Reef Lectures, which in many ways I found really heartening to have a, a proper, highly respected mainstream economist taking on some of this stuff. But I still found myself hearing him say odd things like uh, growth is essential. And I want to go, whoa, hang on, wait a minute. We need to totally unpick that. You know, growth of what exactly? GDP, the size of the planet, the human population, our energy supply, growth of what? And what exactly lets you know that it's essential? Let's go back to first principles properly on all of that. So uh, flawed though they may be, what metrics would you say are more useful measures of, of success? Well, you know, human well-being measures are really, really flawed, <laughs> but you can, as long as you treat them with a lot of caution, they're worth something. Biodiversity metrics are, you know, again, you can always gain them, but, you know, they, they're, they are you know, much more worth having. There's one very simple metric. I mean, you know, I spend a lot of my time, especially at work, you know, counting carbon numbers. And, you know, that is one beautiful metric because there is an absolutely direct and, and, and pretty simple correlation between the way we're mucking about with our climate and the billions of tonnes of carbon dioxide that we're sticking up in the atmosphere. So that's one, pretty, that's one example of a pretty clear metric. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Because whether you're thinking about challenges big or small, let's not dress it up life can be pretty stressful. So it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. We've heard from plenty of the biggest thinkers on psychology and wellness on this podcast, and it's clear that therapy doesn't always have to be solely about addressing some big scary trauma. It could just be a way to learn a few new coping skills and empower you to become the best version of yourself. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. 
Visit BetterHelp.com slash Intelligence today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Intelligence. Another question here. How much emphasis should be put on changing individual behaviours and habits, reducing consumption, reducing number of flights, etc., versus larger scale systemic change, converting to renewable energy sources, carbon taxes, etc.? What's the right balance slash mix? Okay, so it's a really brilliant question. So at the end of the day, this is a global systemic problem and we need global system change. So the question becomes, what will it take to bring that about? And all of us can say, oh, well, I'm just one seven point seven billionth of the problem. You know, what can I do? I'm such a speck. And I, I showed that um, I showed that carbon curve earlier. And, you know, that's not showing any kind of a dent at all, despite the fact that we all know people and companies and even countries that are trying to take action. I mean, how come when you add all that up together, you don't get any kind of a dip at all? And the reason is because at the global system level, and I write about this quite a bit in in the book, there are kind of rebound effects and self-adjusting mechanisms that keep us on the same trajectory. So one person cuts their carbon and the reality is that one way or another the rest of the world somehow kind of adjusts and absorbs the slack unless you can get a global system change so the question for an individual to be asking is what can i do to help bring about the conditions under which that global system change can become possible and it's partly about the way that we live and the sustainability of our of our own lives and it's partly about all the other things that we do to push for change, the way that we, we influence our politicians, the way that we choose carefully where our money is going, the way that we influence our workplace, the way we choose every time we, every time we spend or, or buy anything, you know, what kind of future are we pushing for? So absolutely, individuals have a role. And, you know, I've already talked about the, the role that protest has clearly had in moving forward the business agenda and the political agenda. But I think there are those three forces there. There's, there's, there's the world of business, there's the people, and there's the politics. And they kind of, you know, they can help each other along. They, they all need to change. They'll all change together. But one thing we've really learned is that it's absolutely no good hanging around waiting for the day when the right politicians come along to show the leadership. I think... I, you know, I think the sad reality is that we have to expect probably our politicians are the followers and we the people and the business world between us are the leaders. Fast fashion is one of the main causes of global climate, I think global climate change. What is the role of government policy policymaking versus the role of us individuals as consumers? Well, that's a that's a great example of what I've just been talking about, because, you know, wouldn't it be lovely if there was some leadership from our politicians that really kind of got into this issue and helped us all tune into it and incentivized us all to get away from the idea of, of, you know, buying stuff that we don't need that we wear three times and chucking it out and, you know, all the rest of it. But the reality is that that kind, you know, and there is a role for, for politics and, uh, uh, you know, and legislation and, uh, uh, you know, incentives to help with that. But the reality is that the political, that, you know, because... Our politicians, you know, I don't think of them as the leaders. They are, they are the more primarily the followers in this. You know, they will wait until the space has been opened up by the demonstration that the people, 
that they govern care about this stuff. So what we can all do is, you know, is liberate ourselves from it by just, you know, dematerializing a bit, buying less, buying clothes, for example, less frequently, buying high quality stuff that's sustainably made, getting it mended when it needs repairing, passing it on, you know, just detuning from the, from the kind of, the, you know, the, the needless quantities of clothing, furniture, you know, whatever <laughs> that, that we buy. Do you think the pandemic might have helped with that, though, that, that sort of change in, in our thinking? We, you know, we, fast fashion is all very well, but if you have nowhere to go, <laughs> people are going to buy fewer outfits. And also, I think we're all a lot more ro- rooted in our local communities now, aren't we? I mean, I'm speaking personally here, but I know that I have in, you know, been getting things secondhand from people who, who live nearby rather than, than buying things. Do you think this is a kind of critical moment in, in our thinking when it comes to that kind of consumption? Well, I hope so. I mean, I think this pandemic has been a mixture of, uh, in terms of, in terms of the, the, the system change that I, I've been calling for, you know, I think this pandemic has been a mixture of, on the one hand, a big distraction from it, and on the other hand, it has really helped us along the way. So one thing, you know, we've been forced to change. It's been horrible in lots and lots of ways. But for goodness sake, as we rebuild our, as and when we can rebuild our lives, let's, let's choose how we rebuild them and make them better than they've been before. And there are actually some things for lots of us about this pandemic. I kind of hesitate to say it, but there are some things that have been better about it. So I've done no ironing at all for probably a year now. Uh, You know, for me, that, for me, that's great. That, you know, and I actually love going around in, in, um, you know, in, in ragged old clothes that I've had for years. So I, I enjoy that too. I know not everybody's like that, but, you know, it's, um, <laughs> it's a chance to reflect on, you know, what did we really miss? You know, in the old days when we could go about our lives how we wanted, what did we really miss? And what stuff was just junk that we've worked out we can do without? And now, for goodness sake, let, you know, let's have back the, the things we really value in our lives and not have the other stuff. Next question. A controversial one. Should we aim to control population growth by making it socially embarrassing to have more than two children? <laughs> okay, so uh, you know, there's only a couple of pages specifically on population in in There's No Planet B, and maybe it deserves a bit more. But I I do want to make the point that you know it's it's clear that the more people there are, the more pressure we put on the world, and you know, population growth is undoubtedly a dimension of the, the, the big challenge that we face. But it's also true to say that 12 billion careful people could snuggle up together on planet Earth and live very nicely with all the other species as well. And it's also true to say that 1 billion careless people would smack, could, smash, could and will, would smash the place up in, in no time. So population is an important dimension of this. But it's not the single bullet, silver bullet that some people or the single issue that some people talk about it as. Should there be social stigma around having more than two kids? It's one of those deeply personal decisions. No, I'd possibly say not. But I would also encourage everybody who's at that point in their lives to think really carefully about the sustainability dimension. Because, you know, like it or not, it's, it's definitely there now. Here is a question from Simon from Cumbria. Mike, do you approve of the use of GM crops to help help alleviate global food shortages? <laughs> well, I think I think the GM 
debate when it hit the headlines originally what is it a decade or two ago you know came out because you know there was some stuff going on around gm that was really quite you know really stood to be very negative from a social point of view and and potentially from a biodiversity point of view as well but we need you know there's a lot of there's a lot of technological transformation that you know that we could do within our food system in order to do it more sustainably and genetic modification is probably done in the right way really really carefully with all the checks and balances is probably a part of a part of that transition you know i've already talked about how actually i think that um we are going to be getting more and more of our nutrition without the use of photosynthesis and i say that you know and i'm expecting some of the some of the audience to be thinking oh comes you know that that sounds pretty terrible i think it does take some getting your head around but i suspect it it is an increasing part of the future and it will take a lot of pressure off the food and land system to enable us to do the, the, you know absolutely the right thing by the rest of the ecosystem there's a question in three parts what action can we take which doesn't destroy jobs how can you get people to make changes what changes can we make day to day okay so <laughs> First up, the jobs question. So there are plenty of jobs in the green recovery. So, for example, as we come out of this pandemic, it's so important that the, the economic recovery is a green, is a deep green recovery. And there's so much potential for it. And we've talked a little bit about food and land. You know, it takes more people to do the right thing with a piece of land. And especially where I live, where every bit of land is different it really you know varies from meter to meter it takes real skill and understanding to do the right thing is this bit good for a you know does this bit need a tree or should we just rewild it or can we put soybeans or does it is it one of those pieces of land that actually you can put some is the right thing to do is to put some some animals on and if so how and you know or what it's very very complex that takes a lot of jobs at every skill level you can think of and the same goes for retrofitting our infrastructure, you know, and the same goes for all our renewable energy. So, you know, there is more, you know, there's, if anything, there is more inherent requirement for people to do work in the low, you know, in the in the sustainable world. Although there isn't a requirement for, for anybody to have to be a slave in the sustainable world. So we can, you know, we can pick, you know, how we go about that jobs thing. And I think, you know, we use that jobs, that's you know, that jobs metric as a simple number and I try and unpick this you know in the book I talk specifically about when is a job a good thing actually sometimes a job isn't a good thing you know a job's a good thing if it if it if the person doing that job is doing something inherently useful and the experience of doing the job is inherently rewarding and the job provides a mechanism for making sure that everybody in the world gets the resources they need. So, for example, giving somebody a decent wage so that they can live and bring up a family. And if any of those three things aren't in place, then something needs to change about that job or maybe that job shouldn't be there in the first place. There are plenty of jobs around at the moment that I would rather that the people doing those jobs would just pay the same money not to go to work, to be honest. You know, so, so there's a whole re-engineering of the, of the work thing. That's part one of the question. What was, what was part two? Mind? Was how can you get people to make changes, and what changes can we make day to day? Was the third part. How can we get people to make changes? Well, okay, so it's about making 
it's about it's partly about creating the case and showing that these changes are actually in all of our interests. You know, the process of making the change will be great. There's habit changing. We're, we all get scared of, you know, any sort of change where we can't imagine that it's going to work for us. And I think we need to spend a lot more time imagining and developing our vision of how this future works for everybody. So one example I'll give of this is that I, I live in Cumbria and there's an insane plan to open up a brand new coal mine off the west coast of Cumbria. It's going gonna, it's gonna to bring two or three ton, uh, million tonnes of coal a year out of the ground with an enormous carbon footprint of, sort of eight, eight million tonnes a year or something. And uh, Robert Jenrick, our Secretary of State, has just declined to call it in, saying it's only a local issue, which is a complete load of nonsense. But, but, you know, but one of the arguments behind this mine has been that it will create some jobs which are much needed off the west coast of Cumbria. Exactly the kind of jobs that I don't want to see created. I want to see the thousands and thousands of, of green recovery jobs instead. But what's been missing is, uh, from the whole sort of discussion, is a proper detailed visioning of how the low carbon and sustainability transition is going to really, really work for the west, for the west coast of Cumbria and make everybody's lives better you know, full of really rewarding quality jobs. And then the third part... The third part of the question is what changes can we make day to day? But I think there are this... They need to look through the manual. The <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just <laughs> which take is a, full of take time. A, take a flick through, yeah. <laughs> take a flick through. We've got time for, for a couple more questions, I think. I like the look of this one. Since we have hardly travelled by plane over the last few months, hasn't this had any positive effect on the environment? Yes, it has. And if you look at if you look at the the carbon savings that have gone on from all the things that have changed as a result of the pandemic in 2020, it adds up to humanity buying itself something like, at a best estimate, buying itself something like three and a half weeks of extra time on the climate crisis. <laughs> so it's totally, you know, it's totally irrelevant in in the scheme. Of things in its own right, just as it is. However, if the changes that we, if some of the changes that we've made prove to us that change is possible, um, then, you know, maybe they become really significant because they're the springboard from which we begin this transition in earnest. And specifically on flying. So I said that we've got all the technologies in place, there or thereabouts, to transition to a sustainable world. If there's a fly in the ointment, you know, there's a lot of technical detail on all of that and it is complex and it will take working through and all the rest of it. But if there's one fly in the ointment, it's that we just do not know yet how to put a long haul passenger flight in the air without burning through something like 100 tonnes of liquid hydrocarbon fuel. And, you know, so there's no getting around the very high carbon cost of flying. And we're going to need to fly less, you know. And I, I said this. This is not about hair shirtism, but if there's any element of wearing a hair shirt, we're just going to, you know, we're going to need to constrain that because we just haven't got that particular solution yet. Which doesn't mean to say nobody can ever fly. It doesn't even mean to say you can't take a leisure flight. It does mean to say we just need a better reason for it than we used to have to have. And I don't think the aviation industry will will recover from the contraction that it's had because I think it was already starting to fly in the face of the science 
you know, it was already facing a, a headwind because the science was mounting up on it. If the world governments are slow to act, is there any value in using the world leaders of religion that believe in a creator to use their pulpits to promote your message? They surely should be in the business of saving their God's creation. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we need the leader. We need whatever leadership we can get, wherever we can get it. I'm not uh, I'm not a Catholic and I've been deeply critical of of some popes in the past. But um, we even we even went out and got a bobblehead of the Pope and put it on the mantelpiece a few years back because we were so impressed with some of the things that he said about climate in uh, in his encyclical of about I think it was about five years ago. So you know, uh, absolutely, there there's there's a place for this, and you know, all you know, all religious movements can show important leadership, and and some of them are. I would say, yeah, I would say some some of the best thinking on climate and ecology is coming out of religious movements. I think we have time for one more. Yes. Seeing how little humans have achieved to control CO2 emissions over the last few decades, is it possible that this is a lost battle? Are we actually still on time? Do you ever get climate change anxious? What my most climate change depressed was as I've said when the burning question came out in about 2017 13 that was that was my low point I often show that carbon curve to people to say look I don't want to I don't want to bang on about climate change too much because you hear about the science so much but I just this one thing we need to really understand carefully is that we haven't made the faintest not any statistically significant dent in that curve yet and that doesn't tell us that we can't but it does tell us that it's not about more of the same it's about something different it tells us that global systemic change is required and you know whatever our individual and piecemeal actions are we have to frame it all up as pushing for that absolutely essential global systemic change and we've never you can say, well, humans have shown that they can't respond to a problem like this because we, we, because we haven't responded yet. But you know what? We've never been in this situation before and there's everything to play for. We don't know whether we're capable of pulling this off or not, but we do know that the harder we push, the better our chances will be. An optimistic note to finish on. <laughs> thank you so much, Mike Berners-Lee. And thank you to the audience, such an engaged audience. Really uh, fascinating questions. Thank you to Intelligence Squared uh, for making this all happen. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing... Right now, you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades – and we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.